that's truly where we're going in Romans is what Carol inspired us to do is worship. You know, what is there left after recognizing all that God has done but worship? Let's turn to Romans 8. I think we may actually read some of that, but we're everything Sunday mornings of late has been sort of an exposition of Romans 8. Well, you don't even know it's happening. Since we've had a couple of days off recently, I've certainly compiled an immense amount of doctrine to teach. And so my prayer for you, for for my request for prayer would be that I would be able to have the discipline to focus on what is needed each time we're here. It's my firm belief and conviction that the Holy Spirit is leading us and God is willing for us to experience, and that word experience is extremely important. Experience is extremely important, especially if the experience is real. And it is God's desire to give us the kingdom. As Jesus said, it's the Father's desire and delight. He's delighted to give you the kingdom. And that means that he's desirous and delighted to allow us to experience the kingdom of God right in this present age. We live at the juncture, and I call it the clashing juncture, of two ages, the end of the old the initiation of the new with Christ, with the Christ event and its clashing juncture. He has defeated inimical powers, inimical powers, adverse suprahuman powers, normally simply called sin, death, and the flesh. But they are given other names in Romans 8, at the close of Romans 8, peril, death, sword, famine, things above, things below, principalities and powers. They have been defeated, but they haven't left the theater of battle. Like Saul with his tassel removed and his kingdom removed, he remains on the field to threaten David. So we are in the agona of contention. We still remain in a theater of war because the defeated powers have not left the field. The victory has been declared, but as happened recently, there's not an acceptance of the victory. That happens politically. That happens on the football field. It happened to a group called the Saints, whose coach said they didn't really win. Well, there's powers the flesh, sin, death, principalities and powers under the adversary who uses those powers under his own leverage. They haven't admitted the victory of Christ. And there is an old man, a paleo man, an old self that agrees with that. But there's a new man that we put on. The new man is none other than Jesus Christ himself as Romans 13, 14 says. Now, because the word experience is so difficult, and I used to teach against it a lot because the experiences I was teaching against were largely invalid experiences of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about a valid and true experience of the Holy Spirit, for the kingdom of God is righteousness. That means a God-approved livingness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is manifested in certain manifestations of redemption by the Holy Spirit that come through us, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, in fact, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, defines the experience of the kingdom of God against which there is no law. Five nineteen to 21 reveals all the practices that are practiced by those who are not inheriting the kingdom of God. And there we can properly 
and validly supply the word experience for inherit. Those that do these things do not inherit or do not experience the kingdom of God. I told you once before, I'll tell you again, Paul said. So you can believe the doctrine of universal salvation in Christ Jesus. You can believe all the things we've been taught lately, but still have no experience of the kingdom of God. Because as I've tried to distinguish, creedal faith is far distinguished from a participation in Messiah's faithfulness. There are many things that we're going to be pulling down, many ramparts of fortifications that have been erected by men and men's doctrine that we're going to challenge and put down and do so hopefully in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's vital to understand, as we're going to in Romans 8.33, that God is the one who justifies. God the one who justifies. And that Christ in 8.34 is the one who died. That's extremely important because the one who died picks up that phrase, the one man's obedience, the one man, through the one man. All justify, all are justified. Through the one man, Adam, all come under condemnation. Through the one man, Christ, the one, the one, the one. That he is the one who died, meaning he is the one who died for all and as all humanity, bearing the destiny of all of humanity. It's very vital to understand, then, that God is the one, the Father, that is, the one who justifies. He is the justifier. And that Christ is the one who died. God, who is the one who justifies, again in Romans 8.33. And he justifies precisely a category of humanity called the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly, Romans 4.5, which is a category that covers all of humanity in all of its times. And the reason that God justifies the ungodly is because Christ, the one who died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6, became sin for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin for us. Us there means the ungodly and the unrighteous. And in his resurrection, he was made righteousness or rectitude for us. God made him to be righteousness for us. Sanctification, wisdom, redemption. First Corinthians one thirty always goes splendidly with Second Corinthians 5.21. The one who died, died for all, in behalf of all. This means essentially that he died as all. Again, that this means essentially that he died as all is evinced or made evident by 2 Corinthians 5.14. Since one died for all, then all died. And so we have to take from that that he died not only in behalf of all, but as all encompassing all humanity, all died. If one died and all died at the same time, then one died for all, all died when he died. Moreover, as we've seen, God justified Jesus specifically, the one who became sin, God justified. He was the one who died and the one who was justified by his own faithfulness in Romans 3.26, also Romans 6.7. So, God justified Jesus through his own faithfulness, Romans 3.26, which culminated and concluded with his death by crucifixion. His faithfulness concluded, his obedience culminated in his death by crucifixion, Philippians 2.8, Romans 5.18 and 19. The one who died, capitalize one, died for all, and so all died. The one who died, 
was justified. And so all were justified in him by God who justifies. Jesus became sin for us all. God made him to be righteousness for us all. This is how all receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness by which they reign in life. They, we reign in life as kings because they, we have received justifying life or the justification that is the life that overcame death. That's what we have received. We were made alive together with Christ. It says they reign in life in Romans 5:17 by one Jesus Christ. They receive righteousness and reign in life because they have received justifying life, Romans 5:18, or the justification that is the life that overcame death. They reign in life and here's the juncture with revelation. They reign in life because they have received justifying life. They reign in life as a kingdom of priests to God the Father. In Romans, Revelation, make that, 1, 5, and 6. Because death no longer reigns. We reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Because death no longer reigns. Because Christ overcame and defeated death. Grace reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21. That means the saving act of God in Christ. Grace reigns through righteousness or the saving act of God in Christ unto eternal life. That's the word zoen. I'm going to use the capital Z because I hate writing the small. Z-O-E-N, Zoen, Z-O-E-N. And then the word Aeonion, A-I-O-N-I-O-N. Plural for ages, life of the ages or life eternal. Or we could say the life of the age that has come with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that will be consummated at his coming. Zoen. Aeonion means both eternal life and the life of the coming age. In this case, in this rare case in the Bible, grace reigns unto eternal life. It's called eternal life, rightly, because it's a participation in the life and the livingness of God. It's called the life of the coming age because it's a participation in the life and the livingness of the man, Christ Jesus, who is also God. This life is experienced, and I use that word experience on purpose because it's extremely important right now. This life is experienced by grace in the power of the spirit of life and only in and by the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There's Romans 8, 2, and 3, who overcomes the inferior power. It's superhuman, but it's inferior to the spirit of life, overcomes the inferior power of sin and death in our everyday lives. The spirit of life, and this is pneumatology if we're going to get theological, and I may do that sometime down the road, take one night a week and teach theology, but teach it in a life-giving, experience-giving way. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. The life that is called the life of the coming age or eternal life is laid hold of, as Paul puts it in First Timothy 6.12 and 6.19. 
is experienced in grace in the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who keeps overcoming for us in a practical way the inferior power of sin and death in our everyday lives. The spirit of life is also called the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29. He replaces the wisdom of the spirit of the world or the spirit of the age, the evil age, in our livingness. As Paul said, we do not have our living by the wisdom of this world, but by grace. We live by the grace of God. Also in 1 Corinthians 1.12, we have not received the spirit of this world or of this age, but of the spirit of God who shows us the things that we have freely received from him. Therefore, he is the spirit of grace and of truth. 1 Corinthians 1.12, the spirit of life, Romans 8.2 and 3, is the Holy Spirit. His action is sanctifying in our lives. First Thessalonians 4.8. And it there says that God gives us in a present active indicative. God keeps giving the spirit that he once and for all gave when he regenerated us. The spirit of life is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 1 4 and who will make alive our mortal members now in this meantime and I use that in a double entendre in the meantime which is a mean time because of the powers that have not left the field though defeated the powers that have not left you can be sure you're on the winning team so you don't really have to listen to the gripes and groans of the team that lost. But they're still on the field. They're not leaving the field in this case. As Romans 8.35, that's why Paul wants to assure us that in this clashing juncture of the ages, when things look bad for the saints, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that's not just the love of God as God's love, but as an experience of the kingdom of God. An experience. It's amazing in Galatians, Paul's primary argument against the missionary opponents is an argument based on experience. And it's even more important in that epistle than the argument he makes from scripture. You say, wait a minute. Okay, I will. I'll get to it. Don't worry. I don't make statements like that to rock you without having the documentation, which I do have. Hints of things to come. This is previews of Galatians, if we go there. Romans 5 5. The Holy Spirit who is given to us and keeps being given to us, meaning He always is with us. He pours out the love of God in our hearts continually in Romans 5, 5. He helps us in our inability to pray as we ought. If you feel an infirmity or even a strengthlessness or a weakness, a terrible weakness about your prayer life, then you're being honest because he helps us in our infirmity, which means we all have that infirmity, that weakness. Not only how to pray, but really what to pray for. Pray for my friend that he or she does this. Well, is that really what you want to pray for? Or do you want to pray for something about God's will regarding your friend, which would be far better for them than just praying that they get such and such a thing? We don't know how to pray for people as we are. So sometimes we don't feel right praying and asking for something superficial for them. The Holy Spirit makes intercession. He helps us in this juncture, clashing juncture of the ages in which we have what we introduced way back in Philippians, the agona, an arena of contention. We will be tackling the assumptions 
of replacement theology, which we've already done in Romans 11, but we'll also be attacking the assumptions of a full preterism, which Paul attacked in 1 Corinthians. Oh, I see that you're already reigning. I see that you're already in the consummation of the age. He said, but it's funny. My experience is a little different. So is all the apostles. We've been under the gun in the arena of contention here. We are the off-scouring of the earth. We're considered to be worthy of death. We're delivered over to death. You're kings and queens, but I'll admit it. I'm just the court jester. I'm a fool for Christ. He attacked the enthusiasm that comes from a false experience. And he curbed that enthusiasm. But there is the real experience of the kingdom of God. And that's what God is leading Tetelestai Phalanx into. I'm certain of it. We've already had what Hebrews calls it, tasting the good word of God and of the dynamics of the age to come. Taste is experience. If anything defines experience, it's taste. You have tasted Hebrews 6, 5. The powers, dunamis, the dynamics of the age that's coming, that has come with Christ, that is coming in its fullness. You've tasted it. That's the experience of the kingdom of God. But then he chides people for actually turning away from that experience, which is what the Galatians did on another level. We'll be hitting that. He helps our inability to pray as we ought and enables us in our inability even to know what to pray for in Romans 8, 26 to 27. All prayer really is directed in the way that Jesus directed it. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. If that's my main prayer, then God might not give me some of the things I want. Because the primary prayer of the Spirit is, let your kingdom come. Let the experience of the kingdom come. I can't pray a better prayer for those I love than let the kingdom of God come and invade their lives and bring the experience of the kingdom of God. In this agona, this arena of contention in which adverse superhuman powers given names in Romans 8, 38, and 39, have still not left the theater of battle. They still not have left the field. We're equipped during this time with the sword of the Spirit. Notice what it says. The sword of the Spirit in Ephesians six seventeen, which is the Word of God. And again, that same Word of God, Rema Tutha'u, in Hebrews 6, 5, goes along with a foretaste of the glorious dynamics of the age that began with the Christ event and that consummates with the glorious epiphany of our great God and Savior, which did not occur in A.D. 70. The great epiphany of our great God and Savior will be a universal manifestation of what was accomplished and done in the Christ event. If you don't hope for that, what do you hope for? History ongoing indefinitely? Not me. Titus 2.13. We stand in tiptoe, on tiptoes, it says, in anticipation of the epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until he comes, the Holy Spirit is always with you. Always with you. If he had a word for you today, individually, he would say, I'll always be here. Again, the life that we may experience together in unity. And that's Psalm 133, which should be written over any church. 
how good and how pleasant it is for the siblings to dwell together in unity because it is there that God commands the blessing of eternal life. The experience of eternal life is commanded on those who dwell together in the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is where I have to come in as a pastor. We teach every person. We warn every person to present every person mature in Christ Jesus. And so I want to do today an excursus, a seeming digression, but it's going to fit. In fact, it really defines Paul's intention in writing Romans, at least from one standpoint, an excursus on this word called hyperephania. Hyperephania. And I've kind of coined the term. It comes from a Greek term, hyperephenos, which is used in Romans 130, in which a moralistic Jew and also moralistic Gentiles railed against those pagans. And one of the last things that's said about them is their hyperephania and their ungodliness. But it's interesting that Paul says in Romans, when Jesus Christ comes from Zion, where God laid the foundation stone and the tripping stone, Calvary, when Christ comes from Zion, from his place in Calvary and resurrection, he will take away ungodliness, not from the pagans, but from Jacob, from Israel. So he takes away ungodliness from all the ungodly, which is the pagans and Israel. He universalizes homardiology in order to universalize soteriology. He makes the point that all have sinned and all do sin to make the point that God saves all. Now, this is an excursus on hyperophania, which I would call the root of all bias. We have been reading Romans in the light of the universally saving significance of the triune God, which is radically centered in Jesus and the universally reconciling and redemptive impact of the Christ event. Every movement in history, whether it's capitalism, socialism, one worldism, always leaves someone behind, always leaves some group behind. Even some of this liberation theology in which the victims are accentuated leave behind the perpetrators. God has left no one behind in his redemptive work in Christ. Not the wretched, the miserable, the poor, the overwhelmed psychologically, the psychologically malaised, not the downtrodden, not any race, not any ethnicity. In fact, he hasn't even left behind the dead in his redemptive work. So we have to stand at a critical distance from all human ideologies because none of them are perfect and all of them leave somebody behind, not the redemptive work of God in Christ. That's coming up. And so... Paul brings the power of these momentous truths, and this is what I'm trying to get to in Romans, get at in Romans, and I hope it does do so. Paul uses the power of these momentous truths to bear. He brings the power of them to bear on the Jericho walls, I call them, that have been erected around certain cliques or groups that challenge the practical unit integrity of the saints in the city of Rome. Of course, this fans out to our own time. Paul intends the result to be entirely destructive of those walls, but entirely productive of a unity in which God commands the experience of eternal life, the experience of the kingdom of God. He intends the results to be entirely destructive of those walls. Paul, in other words, his strategy is always in all his epistles involves the pulling down of strongholds, the demolition of every high thing, 
that exalts itself against the knowledge of the God who is love. And he brings those thoughts, he brings every thought into subjection to Christ. Almost every problem I have is related to something in me, a thought that I've held that has not been brought into obedience to Christ. Guilt is a thought that has not been brought into obedience to Christ. Fear, as we've heard before, a thought can make you or a thought can break you. People hold on to one thought and it breaks their whole life because that thought has not been brought into submission to the redemptive person of Christ and his redemptive work. Much more could be said about that. But Paul's strategy is found in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6. He intends to bring down the Jericho walls. Throughout this epistle, the apostle is performing the activity of the overseeing pastor. The activity of the overseeing pastor. That is outlined in Hebrews 12. I was asked pointedly recently by someone who said, you know the state of the flocks, you said. And I said, I hope so. And he said, and I won't mention the person because I love him and they're a friend. But he said, do you know how much I was hurting recently? And I said, I don't know how much everybody is hurting in every level of every pain of every person in all our congregation. No, that's God's knowledge. What I'm supposed to know is the state of the flocks Volitional response to the word of grace. The flock as a whole, is it, is it like Galatians? Is it on the verge of defection? Is there some bitterness that's a root that's defiling many? Is the congregation overwhelmingly positive? I can declare today that I think our congregation is overwhelmingly positive. Therefore, when I do a check like hyperephania, it's pr- largely preventive. Preventive. That's why it's called warning. Don't go there. But the pastor in Hebrews 12, 15, and this also fans out over all the congregation members. Everyone should have this kind of awareness, but it's too, especially episcopos is the word. It begins, the verb is episcopuntas, which is oversee. In Hebrews 12, 15, oversee in such a way as to prevent someone from failing to obtain and enjoy the grace of God. Lest some root of bitterness, bitterness is a perfect metaphorical equivalent for the word resatamon, a pervasive belittling animosity that's contained in group biases that exist among the saints in Rome and that, of course, have festered in our own society and... Hopefully, the gospel will destroy them. So he says, oversee in such a way as to prevent someone from failing to obtain and enjoy the grace of God, lest some root by festering be allowed, a root of bitterness be allowed to come up, spring up, and cause trouble, causing many to become defiled by it. The belittling activity of pride and a high opinion of oneself in the Adamic ontology, Romans 8, 13, militates against the experience of God's grace in which Christ has received us to the glory of God. In grace, Christ has received us to the glory of God. Who are we not to receive anyone else? Romans 15, 7. Biases rooted in arrogance imply that one or another person or persons not in your group or circle is excluded from the grace of God. It causes people to fail to appropriate God's grace in fellowship with others. Hyperiphania originated in a creature who said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The other volitional beings, in that case, angelic, hyper The example of Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal 
is analogous to those who give away their own participation with Christ's livingness in order to partake in the pleasure of a bias in which they hold themselves to be higher and better than others. The expression of this bias is defined by the Greek word huper, aphania. I'll just write it briefly. I hope I get through the end of this this discursive thing today. H-U-P. That hard breathing means there should be an H there. There's no H in the Greek. Huper. E-P-H-A-N-I-A. Huper Ephenia. The accent is here, so it would actually be Huper Ephenia. But I anglicized it. That means I destroyed it by turning it into an English word, Hyper Ephenia. It's kind of a psychological term. According to the scripture, Hyper Ephenia is an expression of bias. And it's defined as a conscious effort to appear conspicuously above others. It's called arrogance, pride, and haughtiness in Mark 7.22. It's the opposite of a thing called tepaino frusune, which is humility of mind. Humility of mind is the result of bringing every thought into subjection to Christ. Tepaino Frasune. Another lexicon defines it as pertaining to being ostentatiously proud, arrogant, haughty, or contemptuous. Still another, Thayer's says, to show oneself above others. James is wonderful in his description of it. God resists the haughty. And gives grace to the humble. It means to show oneself above others, overtopping, conspicuous above others, preeminent. Reminds me of what John said about diatrophies. He desires the preeminence. Another says, an overweening estimate of one's means or merits, despising others or even treating them with contempt, haughty. The word is used in Romans 1.30, 2 Timothy 3.2. It's opposed to tepenoi in, Rome, in James 4.6 or humble in 1 Peter 5.5 5, after Proverbs 3.34. It goes along with dianoia cardia, the thoughts of the heart. The understanding thoughts of the heart in Luke one fifty one. According to Jesus in Mark 7.21-23, this haughtiness, huperiphania, or showing of oneself to be better and higher than others. And he lists it along with sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, indecency, envy, and slander. Quite a list. Hyperophania, prominent among that list. He said it comes from within. From a person's heart. And then it defiles, he says. It defiles or makes the person who has it unclean. He explains that uncleanness does not result from the failure to fulfill rituals or perform sacraments as the Pharisees accused he and his disciples. And this defilement of others and destruction of fellowship makes up a group bias. The heart which harbors hyperophania is turned in upon itself. Curvature in adesse, curvature in on oneself. The next verse after 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains me, overwhelms me, controls me now, because I have determined this, that if one died for all, then all died. He then said that we should now live not to ourselves, not turned in on ourselves, but to the one who raised from the dead. Extra say, outside ourselves, directed toward him. 
And so that's exactly what true worship is. It's the direction of ourselves out to God. God seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is a true experience of the spirit. The heart that harbors hyperphenia is hyperphenia, hyperephenia is turned in upon itself, or I say hyperephenia to make it an English term. It suffers from a curvature in upon oneself in which the worship of God becomes diverted to the ego. It's possible to retain pride and arrogance while confessing belief in a creed while still being dominated and controlled by the flesh, capital F, all caps, flesh. It is impossible to maintain pride and arrogance. Notice this. It is impossible to maintain pride and arrogance while participating in Messiah's faithfulness by the Spirit. The malady called hyperophania is the very essence of the Adamic ontology. It's a descriptor of the Adamic ontology. Adam hid his nakedness with fig leaves, and he tried to hide from God. He became painfully self-conscious of his nakedness. And so did Isha. There was no distinction between them under sin, even as there is no distinction of male and female in Christ. This painful self-consciousness is expressive of curvature in Adse, or of being bent inward by the suprahuman influence and enslaving pressure of sin. That's what sin does. It bends us inward. It occupies us with ourselves. It gives ourselves a sense of self-importance that's unrealistic. We're important, all right, because we're the objects of God's unrestricted love. But for no other reason. This curvature in ad se, or curvature in on oneself, is by definition death. Because the so-called life or living that's determined by the flesh is the experience of death. I'm exegeting Romans 8 now, but you don't even know it. Or maybe you do. While life and livingness, on the other hand, as a participation with the Messiah, Jesus, under the quiet dynamism of the omnipotent spirit. Is the experience of the life that has conquered death and the peace that is given not by the world, but by Jesus Christ. Therefore, there has been a loud experience of the spirit that has been tried and found wanting with many other. God has tried and found wanting on the scales of justice, many systems within Christendom, and he has forsaken them, not the people in them, but the systems themselves. They've outlived their usefulness. They've outlived their time. But now there is the quiet experience. So I call it the quiet dynamism of the omnipotent spirit of Christ, which is the experience of life that has conquered death. It's not just life or liveliness. It's a life that's conquered death. And a peace that's given not by the world, but by Jesus himself in John fourteen twenty seven. One cannot truthfully say, therefore, I love God while hating his brother or while excluding his sister from the grace that he has received. And there's a wonderful marriage application of this in 1 Peter 3, 8. Seeing each other and treating each other as equal heirs of the grace of life. I said spirit of grace, I said spirit of life, I now say the grace of life. If you look at your wife or your wife as a wife, you look at your husband, if you look 
at your significant other, as we say, as an equal share of the grace of Christ, the grace of life. There's the foundation of marital unity. 1 Peter 3.8 Sometimes a word about marriage does better than a marriage seminar. One cannot, in fact, hate his brother without hating Christ, who's not ashamed to call us brothers. Convicting, isn't it? Should be. All hyperiphania is, in fact, a sin against Christ. God resists the proud, the hyperiphanic, but gives extraordinary grace, more grace, mezona karin, to the humble. To be resisted by God is to be dead. You're resisted by the living God, you're dead. To be given grace is to truly live, to receive that grace. It is to live in participation with the humble one, Christ Jesus. Come to me, I am meek and lowly of heart. To live in the one who is humble is to be assured of elevating grace. So humble yourselves under the powerful hand of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And he will elevate you. James 4.10, Proverbs 3.34, Matthew 23.12 in principle. Group bias, therefore, is dominated by a blind spot. We've called it, and Pastor Brown's taught it, scatosis it's called, caused by an oversight of insight or by a flight from the insight of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and of the universally redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ. It may confess the traditional doctrine of the gospel, but it lacks insight into the astounding, Christocentric, eschatological, and intensely practical and transforming implications of the gospel. It may be able to narrate the scandalous history of a person or of a group, them, the others, they, while still failing to see the eschatological viewpoint that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. Failing to understand that God made Christ to be righteousness for all. This scatosis or blind spot, flight from insight or oversight of the insight, may have creedal belief in the doctrines or the dogma of what it calls the church. God may not call it that. They call it that. But it has not been awakened to a faith in Christ's faithfulness. I'm not done teaching on faith, and I have a message coming forward on it. It has not been awakened to a faith in Christ's faithfulness as the means of the justification of all. It therefore falls or comes short of the grace of God and fails to see others as unconditional objects of that grace. Like politicians who become addicted to resistance of the other side, instead of patiently committed to principle and willingness to compromise for the good of the people. Those who intransiently adhere, intransigently adhere to group bias rooted in hyperephania will never ask certain questions or maybe not even be permitted to read outside of the books that their pastor reads. They're never allowed to ask the kind of questions that lead to reflection and to answers that just might be incompatible with their own egoism. So they don't want to ask the questions in the first place. And if you've asked them and they've answered, they don't want to be around you. I'll say that again. 
those in group bias who intransently adhere to it will never ask certain questions that lead to reflection for fear that the answers that they find may be incompatible with their own egoism and their own sense that their group is still useful somehow. (laughs) Those who stubbornly hang on to group bias, such as that of self-styled Christians, people who condition themselves or self-style themselves as Christians, who consider their well-being to be a matter of personal belief, exemplary behavior, or belonging to such and such a church, refuse insights that reveal that the usefulness of their group or their divisive denomination is at an end. It's over. Daniel 5, 26 to 27. Many, many tekel ufar sin. The handwriting's on the wall and the son of man's finger wrote it. You've been tried in the balances and found lacking. Your kingdom is gone. Your usefulness is gone and given to another. That was written on the walls of a party that was being held by the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. That night, the Medes and the Persians took down the Babylonian kingdom. Sometimes nations and denominations are all done before they know it. And then the end comes. So I'll say it again. Those who stubbornly hang on to group bias, such as that which belongs to divisive denominationalism, is at an end. And their time of triumphal provincial pride has been tried and found wanting, Daniel 5, 26 and 27, by the God of all grace. Bernard Lonergan wrote this on page 250 of his little book, he called it, ha-ha, ironically, called Insight. He said, the sins of group bias may be secret and almost unconscious. And I say, indeed, those sins are secret because they are in the heart, the hidden citadel of thinking and intentionality that's controlled by the suprahuman impulsive desire to be higher than better than others called the impulsive desire of the flesh. Curvature in ad se is an egocentrism that is at the same time estrangement from others. The more a person is egocentric, the more they are estranged from others and see others in the light of their otherness. In fact, they have on the spectacles that are reverse of rose colored. They see everything as defiled. And that's when ideologies become idolatry and idolatry is really ugly. And that's when people take their stake out their intransigent secondary positions and they build their Jericho walls. And these are what Paul is demolishing. He calls it, Lonergan calls it, an incomplete development of intelligence. And I kind of like that because people who think they're higher than and better than others also think they're smarter than others. And they suffer from an incomplete development of intelligence. We know that's not meaning that we got to get smarter, but I say the incomplete development of intelligence has to be augmented by receiving a higher viewpoint, which I call the eschatological perspective, which is immeasurably more than the mere prescience of the last things or future prophetic events. It's much more than that. It's seeing the significance of Jesus Christ and him crucified as being all significant multiply individual bias and you have group bias group bias can expand to a general bias to infect a culture a country a generation or generations plural and thus lead to the degradation of orderly civilization it can certainly wreck the order of a spiritual phalanx or a local assembly of believers So for our study in Romans, the epistle, 
This incomplete development of intelligence is an incomplete development of what I call spiritual intelligence, which is to the exclusion of the transcendent spirit-given understanding that the Lord does mercy to all and has in fact done mercy to all and that all are saved by God's mercy. In short, it's the absence of, This lack of intelligence on the part of group bias is the absence of the Christological or Christ-centered eschatological viewpoint. The irony of this thing is that a higher viewpoint humbles you and that your humility leads to a higher viewpoint that humbles you. It's a cycle of humility, a virtuous cycle, not a vicious one. By the faith that God kindles in us, we begin to discern the height and the depth, the breadth and the width of the love of Christ that surpasses normal human intelligence. Intelligence agencies call it HUMINT, H-U-M-I-N-T, all caps, human intelligence. And it discerns the universality of divine mercy that surpasses normal human capacity. It keeps you humble because you know that you didn't come to this knowledge by yourself. This is a faith that works by love. It has its dynamic from the unconditional love of God, and it operates in an energetic field of love. I'm going to be really quick about this and finish this up now, but credo belief in the merely traditional facts of the gospel does not work by love. Not necessarily. Those facts can be believed while hyperephania is nourished and cherished in the heart secretly. But the faith that is a shared participation in Messiah's own fidelity is also a shared participation in Messiah's own humility. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Philippians 2, 4 through 8. It is faith that discerns the total expression of God's love and the universal scope of his mercy. This faith works by a love that cannot and does not harbor bitterness. It eschews measurements based on human standards, means it rejects it. It eschews or hates, despises measurements based upon human standards of performance or comparisons based on ethnic origins. It hates gossip. George Harrison did a song that we don't usually hear very often, but he called it the devil's radio, his definition of gossip. And it repels slander because love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, does not keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. That sound familiar? That's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6. When the suprahuman love of God that's poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit controls us, then the curvature in I'd say is converted into a life and livingness that is extra say outside of ourselves in spiritum Christi, outside of ourselves in the spirit of Christ, the experience of the kingdom of God. In that conversion, the self curved in on itself effectively dies. The self turned in on itself dies. Hallelujah. And a new human being is raised to newness of life, reigning in life by one Jesus Christ. To live not two and for oneself, but to to live two and for the one who was raised from the dead. This newness of life is in direct contradiction to the oldness of the letter, Romans 7, 6 of the law. It is not lived in the old self at all. It is lived not in the old self at all. It is a life lived extra se, Latin for outside oneself, in Christ, in the spirit. 
This chimes with our passage in Colossians 3.3. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Colossians 2.20, you died to the elemental forces of the cosmos. Those are the powers we've been talking about. Sin, death, and the hijacked law, or any other lords from the pantheon of Elohim, those who are called gods in 1 Corinthians 8.5, Psalm 82.6, and John 10.34. The one who is under the law cannot be justified or rectified or have a livingness that is pleasing to the one true God. Because sin, with a capital S, reveals its exceeding sinfulness by taking over that which is righteous and good, the law, and any other attempt to be righteous while still controlled by the flesh. In closing, therefore, God-approved livingness, G-A-L, capital, caps, all caps, is extra say from resources outside ourselves and in Christ being crucified with the risen Christ, a person is now raised with the crucified Christ. I'll say that again. Being crucified with the risen Christ, a person is now raised with the crucified Christ. Again, this life that is life out of death is a life after having died and after having been made alive with the crucified and risen Christ. The old human being, palaios anthropos, as he's called, or archaos anthropos, depending on whether you read Colossians or Ephesians. I call him paleo man, is put off entirely. The new human being is put on. Better yet, Paul explains what he means by putting on the new man in Romans thirteen fourteen in a climactic phase in which he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the new man, the new person. He becomes the prime subject of our life and livingness. Even this life, however, is not lived apart from the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Let me say it this way. Even Jesus lived by the spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said in his opening sermon in Luke 4. Even Jesus lived by the Spirit. So anyone who lives in human goodness apart from the Spirit is only presenting to the world a caricature of Christianity that is rightly rejected by the world. Ultimately then, it is a life and a livingness where the one doing the living is Christ and not us, even though we live. A wonderful paradox. However, we live not in continuity with our old life, but in a shared life with the crucified Christ who was raised from the dead. He becomes the actuating, living, motivating subject, and we live with his life. Christ is our life. Colossians 3, 4. God is eminently pleased with his son, and therefore he is pleased with us who have been made alive with his son's life. He is pleased with our livingness when we live in the sphere of the faithfulness of the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Again, even Jesus was empowered by the spirit who was upon him and who raised him from the dead. Hyperiphania, then, is, is precisely the root of the IDF, the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is irreconcilably at odds with the spirit, as is shown in Romans 8, 2 to 13. Instead of reading it all today, I'll ask you to read it again on your own. Twelve times flesh, twelve times spirit, ultimately distinguishes two entities, the Israel that isn't Israel, and the Israel called the Israel of God. This is a big loop. It takes us back full circle to an insight in a galaxy far away a long, long time ago called the farm. Thank you, Father. We do thank you that many times the pastor has to digress from teaching to present a warning, but that warning itself is a valuable, invaluable teaching. 
Because I see today, even now, only now, at the end of this message, I see, Father, your purpose in directing this message. Because your desire to lead us into an experience of the kingdom of God requires that obstacles be removed that keep us from that experience. So we thank you for it. Thank you for every gathering. Thank you for every person here. Not one person here is the other to us. But all are one in Christ, and Christ is all in you. We thank you, Father.